So we're kicking off a nice lighthearted series. <laughs> hey, how's it going? It's good to be back with you. I've, uh, I've been gone for a little while and uh, I was hoping that yeah, was in a, thank you. <laughs> You're my favorite service. Um, I was in Africa for a little while and I was looking forward to coming back to nice, cool Colorado fall air. <laughs> And it's been 85 degrees ever since I've been back. So, but it is fall. And uh, first stop in fall is, is Halloween. And Halloween kind of reveals this cultural phenomenon that goes on in our country where you have these different kinds of people. You have, first of all, uh, the non-yard decorating people, people who refuse to decorate their yards for anything. Doesn't matter what it is, government-sponsored day off, big game, holiday, doesn't matter. They may be participating in those things. You will just never know based on any evidence in their yard. Then you have the over-the-top yard decorating people. Are there any of you here today? There you are. Yeah, there you are. We're all so appreciative this time of year when we're walking our, our dog or our kids to the park or whatever and the zombie apocalypse breaks out in your front yard as we walk by. That's really, really, really helpful. We appreciate that. And then there are those, there are those of us who are, we don't want to be yard decorating people, but our kids make us decorate the yards. And that's the group that I fall in. Uh, and you can tell our yards because they're obviously these half-hearted attempts at decorating your yard. Like if you see my yard this time of year, at best, we'll get like a few like spider webs and maybe even real cobwebs on the front door and and we have a few pumpkins laying around and then maybe my kids will take some tissue paper make them look like ghosts and throw them in the tree that's about it that's about all you're going to get but I've observed also during my lifetime and I could be wrong in this but it seems to me that over the past several years there's become this kind of increased obsession with Halloween. Like people are really into Halloween today in a way that they didn't used to be when I was a kid. Now don't worry, this is not going to be one of those Halloween bashing sermons where we lock ourselves in the church basement on Halloween and dress like Bible characters. That's not what we're going to do. <laughs> if you want to do that, that's fine. Do your thing. But that's not, what we're, that's not what this is about. But there does seem to be this increased interest, if you will, in dark things, spiritual things, and scary things. Even, I would go so far to say for some people, it's actually an obsession. See, when I was a kid, I don't remember, maybe, maybe it's different for you. When I was a kid, I don't remember any adults dressing up for Halloween. Like, that didn't happen. It was a kid's thing. We went out and did that. I don't remember adults going to Halloween parties. And, and I'll, I'll take this one for the team. I think my generation, Generation X, is kind of like the proverbial teenager who won't let go of trick-or-treating. You know what I'm talking about? It's like when that 15-year-old comes to your door and says trick-or-treat, and you're like, bro, that's a real beard. Like if you, if you have, if you can shave, you've officially aged out of trick-or-treating, right? And I feel like our generation like refuses to give Halloween over to the children and we hang on to it and we make it all about us and all that kind of stuff. And we have this obsession with horror movies in our culture. They make hundreds of millions of dollars every year. I remember about 20 years ago or so taking my girlfriend at the time, she later became my wife to see the movie Scream when it released. Uh, we went and watched it uh, at midnight at the other side of town at the Dirt Mall. You know what I mean when I say the Dirt Mall? Like the mall nobody actually goes to because none of the stores are actually open. You know what I'm talking about? But there's the one movie theater that's like run down we went to that one watched it at midnight and then they made us exit out into the back alleyway after the movie and we all like sprinted to our cars because we were convinced serial killers were waiting for us and remember uh Blair Witch Project when that first came out the obsession with Blair Witch Project that thing grossed 140 million dollars uh, I, I remember my wife and I before we had kids we used to have this tradition where we would go get we would go rent a movie there used to be these places called video stores and, and you had to physically go to them. 
and you would get this thing called a VHS tape off of the shelf and you would put it into a thing called a VCR. And every Halloween, we would, we would go rent a movie, a scary movie, and we would watch it. And the kids would come ring the doorbell and, and we would hand out candy and all that kind of stuff. And, and one year we got to the video store, we got to Blockbuster or whatever too late. And so all the scary movies were gone except for one on the bottom shelf, this movie called Rosemary's Baby. And uh, my wife has never forgiven me for that one. And... Um, Fortunately, she still married me. To, to today, uh, some of the most popular TV shows are American Horror Story, The Walking Dead. There's one that just came out called Lucifer. And the question I guess I have is simply this. Why does this sell so well? Why does this sell so well? Like, why do we tune in to things like this so, so often? What is it about evil that raises our curiosity? And if you really want to sell evil, all you have to do is mix in a little sexiness, right? This is what I call the scary sexy combination. If you go to one of those Halloween stores that pops up during, during this time of year and you walk down the, the costume aisle for women, every costume is going to be sexy fill in the blank, right? Sexy this, sexy that. Se- I saw a sexy Crayola crayon outfit the other day. I'm like, is there nothing sacred anymore? Like we can't even keep the crayons for the kids. It's got to be sexy, you know? So, so is all the, I guess that my question is, is all this just in good fun or is there something else going on? Because, because if I were the enemy, like if I were the enemy and I was trying to take humans out, you know what I would do? One of the things I would do is I would take something good and beautiful and God-given like human sexuality and I would try to pervert it and twist it with something evil. And then I would try to convince everybody that it's just all in good fun. That's what I would do, but what do I know? So, I mean, is all this just in good fun? Or, here's my suspicion, I think all of this that we observe in our culture is a hint. It's a shadow of something that's actually going on that's more serious. So that's what we're going to look at in this series. We're going to look at the dark forces of evil that are all around us. Or, maybe you're going, eh, maybe this is all just invented stuff that we've conjured up to entertain ourselves. C.S. Lewis in his book, The, the Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read that, go read it. It's very, very interesting. He says this in his, his introduction to that book. He says, there are two kind of equal and opposite uh, mistakes that human beings can, can run into in regards to how we perceive the dark forces of evil in the, in the world around us. One is total disbelief, and the other is an unhealthy obsession. So one mistake would be to just go, man, that's all pretend. It's all made up. There's nothing spiritual. There's only the physical. There's only what we can see. There's no such thing as angels and demons and spirits or anything like that. That'd be one mistake. The other mistake, though, would be to see a demon behind every rock and every tree and to live with this just unhealthy obsession and fear of the evil going on around us. So in this series, we want to keep those two things in mind. And what we want to do is we want to look at this through the lenses of the Bible. We want to see what the Bible actually says about all this. We want to have a biblical worldview on the dark forces around us. So the first stop is going to be in the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, chapter 6, verse 12. So if you've got your phone, you've got your Bible, go ahead and grab those. And go ahead and pull up Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. We're going to look at this very famous passage. And we've talked about Ephesians many times around here, both in here at some of our men's and women's retreats. And and the book of Ephesians is actually a letter that was written by this man named Paul to this church, this group of Christians in a town called Ephesus. And Ephesus was a major metropolitan city. It wasn't a small town. It was a big city. And in that city, uh, people had a tendency to fall in the category of having an unhealthy obsession with spiritual forces. In other words, you didn't really have to convince anybody of spiritual forces. Everybody bought into spiritual forces. They, they, they practiced witchcraft and kind of forms of pagan voodoo. They, they worshiped all kinds of false gods, so much so that really the economy 
uh, was centered on this obsession with the spiritual forces of, of good and evil in the world. When Paul was there, he spent several years in Ephesus, um, he was spending a lot of time uh, casting out demons out of people. People were demon-possessed in that city, and he would cast out demons by the power of the name of Jesus. And, and one of my favorite stories, you can read about this in the book of Acts, is when these, these seven sons of this man named Sceva, who were, this, get this, they were Jewish itinerant exorcists. How about that as a mouthful? They were, they were practicing at casting out demons, and that was, that was kind of their flourishing job. And so they saw what Paul was doing, and they saw an opportunity to make money. And so they, they come up, across this man who has this demon who's possessing him, and they try to cast out this demon by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches. And one of my favorite moments in that, the demon speaks back to them and says, hey, Paul, I've heard of, and Jesus I know, but who are you guys? That's an oh crap moment. And then the man who was possessed by the demon jumped on these seven dudes, beat up all seven of them, stripped them naked, and chased them out of the house as they were bloody and wounded. And you know you've lost a fight when you run away naked and bloody, right? You officially lost. So again, everybody in town saw that happen. You don't have to convince anybody in Ephesus of the spiritual forces of evil. I just got back from a place like that. I just got back from Uganda and I spent some time with, some time with our friends Andrea and Leah and Haril who oversee Musana, our partner organization in Uganda. And I'm just sitting with them under a shelter one day and I said, hey, when I, when I get back, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna be teaching about, I'm gonna be teaching about spiritual warfare. You guys have any thoughts on that? And they all looked at me, kind of laughed. They're like, you don't have enough time for all of our thoughts on this, Scott. And they told me stories, stories of moments where they would, they would be walking around the school grounds and they would find a, a child with several other children standing around and that child laying in the dirt, writhing with their eyes rolled the back of their head, speaking with some sort of demonic voice and the other children saying the name of Jesus and praying for them and singing worship songs until the demonic oppression ceased. They got story after story after story of the evil forces at work around them. They can also tell you about the flip side that C.S. Lewis warned us about, about people who have an unhealthy obsession with this force, the forces of darkness, who claim a spiritual cause for everything under the sun, for every physical problem, they blame a demon. They can tell you about a young girl who I got to meet while I was there whose family believed she was cursed and didn't want to be around her, but turns out she actually just had rheumatoid arthritis and just needed treatment. They can tell you about folks who don't believe in AIDS. They think it's just a, an evil spirit that killed their husband or their wife or whatever. And I think forms of this happen all the time. Some people have an unhealthy obsession with this. Will attribute everything, spiritual causes or to, to spiritual causes or demonic oppression. But the reality is, if you got something going on in your life, like I don't know, high blood pressure, for example, the first stop probably needs to be like nutrition and exercise, not to blame everything on the demon of high blood pressure, right? But there are those uh, among us who that's what we do. Now, there may be a spiritual reason why you're avoiding eating the right things or taking care of your body because at the end of the day, the Bible tells us everything is spiritual. But there's another mistake that we often make, which is attributing things to the physical, which may have spiritual causes. In other words, medicine can't treat everything and going to the gym can't take care of everything and eating kale can't take care of everything, Right? What the Bible teaches is that everything is spiritual and all of this works together, which means that a lot of circumstances we face in life, we won't be able to determine necessarily if it's a spiritual cause or a physical cause or a mental cause or an emotional cause because it's all working together. So at the end of the day, what we have to understand is everything is spiritual. What you eat is spiritual. What you do with your body is spiritual. The way you treat your body is spiritual. What you read, what you listen to, what you watch is spiritual. What you're entertained by is spiritual. So when Paul writes to these young Christians in this town called Ephesus, he knows that a lot of them, they may be losing sight of that war, that struggle that they're in with the spiritual forces of darkness around them. 
And so he wants to remind them, look at this, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here's Paul, who just prior to this, if you read prior to this in Ephesians, he's been writing about marriage and family and parenting and how to deal with coworkers and bosses and all this really practical stuff, these day-to-day interactions we have with one another. And he knows that our temptation in the midst of those day-to-day interactions is to start to believe that, that each other are the enemy, that your husband's the enemy, your wife's the enemy, your kids are the enemy, your boss is the enemy, your coworker is the enemy, your neighbor is the enemy. And what he's trying to do is, is remind everybody, go, don't forget, don't forget our struggle, our wrestling match, if you will, and he uses that word wrestle, is not against each other. It's not against flesh and blood. You are in the ring. You are in a, in a conflict, but it's not against one another. And we so easily fall into believing that each other are the enemy. So what he's directing our thoughts towards is that we need to know who the enemy really is. And here's what's fortunate. We have a lot of game film on our enemy. You know what I'm talking about? Like my, my son Eli, he's playing football right now and his team just went undefeated during the regular season and each week it seems that the opponent for the next week has showed up, somebody, some parent or somebody to film their games because they're trying to get game film on 10-year-olds. They're trying to get game film so that they can exploit their weaknesses in the, in the game before, right? That's how you play sports. You, you, you observe game film, you look for weakness, weaknesses and then you try to exploit them. So we have game film on our enemy, but here's what we're going to look at next week. Our enemy also has game film on us. And it's really unique and it's crafted specifically. It's a specific scheme and game plan against us knowing our weaknesses. So we better know who we're dealing with, right? So Paul directs our thoughts this direction to go, man, our battle's not against each other. It's, it's against these rulers. And when he uses that word rulers, what that actually is referring to is there's a, there's a hierarchy in the spiritual world. Think organization, think military style organization with chain of command. That's what's going on. Against authorities, that word means power. So these spiritual forces, they're not just real. They are real, but they're very powerful as well. And against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's a specific reference to Satan and his demons and their influence in this world, in this, on this earth. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we have a misperception of that phrase, heavenly places, because when we hear that, what we think is, oh, heavenly places. That's like off in the heavens. That's away. That's somewhere else. But the way that literally translates in the Greek is the air around us. So if you're not already creeped out, this ought to do the trick. There are evil spirits in the air all around us. And this is really, really important. This battle is going on all around us. You are spiritual, heart, soul, mind, and strength, which means that even though we feel like we can just go, oh, I don't even participate in the spiritual realm. I just live in the, what I can see. You don't get that option because this war is around us. So we have to live with this awareness, this is a key word, that this is happening Notice I didn't say fear, I just said awareness that this is going on. And I think that view of things explains a lot about our human experience. Because time out for a second, let me, let me talk to those of you in the room who are going, you've got to be kidding me. This is the first time I've come to church ever or in a long time, and this dude's up there talking about ghosts and goblins. You've got to be kidding me. 
Like you're going, I, I lost a bet, that's why I'm here today, and I'm so upset that this is what I gotta listen to today. Like right now, you wanna grab the person who brought you and go, let me tell you what's gonna happen next. After he's done trying to scare all of us, he's gonna ask us for money. That's what preachers do. They scare you, and then they ask you for money to make, it, make the scary stuff go away. Look, if you're skeptical in here today, I totally get it. Like you may not believe that, but I get it because I am naturally wired to be skeptical. And I'll be honest with you, when I go out into the lobby and people come up to me and they start telling me stories about spiritual warfare and stuff like that, I usually think they're crazy. I do. I usually kind of cringe and wait for the crazy to come out. And sometimes it does, okay? But not always, right? So if that's you, I totally, totally get it. But hang with me for a little bit. Let me, let me, let me ask you some questions and be honest with the way you answer these questions in your, in your head. Have you ever, at some point in your life, had what I would refer to as an undeniable experience of the presence of evil, where you could just sense it, you could feel it, you couldn't put a lot of language to it, but it was undeniable. Have you ever woken up in the middle of the night and had this just, just feeling, this sense, maybe you were bothered, maybe you would even say you felt like you were being tormented, you had this overwhelming sense of fear that you couldn't explain? I've been to Haiti a few times, and I'll tell you what, man, when you hear those voodoo drums in the middle of the night, it's not just drums. There's something else going on. And I know the skeptical in the room are going, come on, man. Come on, that, that, that's your brain chemistry. That's your, that's your gut biome. Take a probiotic or something, you know. <laughs> I get it. Let me ask you this. Have you ever looked into someone's eyes and all you saw was just this hollow, lifeless darkness? You ever heard somebody's voice and go, I mean, something's not right, something's off, something seems almost evil? I'll give you an example. You ever heard old audio recordings of Hitler's speeches? I have. And I'll tell you what, he doesn't even sound human to me. Probably why a lot of people during that time thought, thought that Hitler was demon-possessed, and, and I don't know if he was or wasn't, but according to the Bible, that's totally possible. And look, right now, you may be going, Scott, come on, man. I don't believe all this stuff. Okay, great. Then just view this for a few weeks as like you're watching a scary movie, right? Just be entertained by this discussion. But you might want to listen because I think some of this is going to resonate with your experience. Because I would have to ask this question. If the material world is all there is, like if John Lennon was right in that famous song, Imagine, no hell below us, above us only sky. If all there is is the things that we can see and there's no such thing as a spiritual realm, then please explain to me how you justify calling anything good or anything evil. There just is what there is. And evil and good are just these arbitrary things we've invented in our small little brains that are going to cease to be important in a few years. They're just social constructs we've come up with. See, that doesn't resonate with me. I don't know about you. And one of the reasons I love the Bible is the Bible actually addresses these deep questions that we have, these deep intuitions and suspicions that we have that there's got to be more going on than meets the eye. There's got to be more going on than just the material world. So if what the Bible says is true, then we need to familiarize ourselves with who our enemy is and what the enemy's strategy is, and we need to know how to fight against him. So that's what we're going to tackle in this series. That's what we're going to be looking at for the next few weeks when this all culminates on Halloween weekend. So today, all I want to look at first is this. Who is our enemy? What can he do? What can he not do? The Bible describes him as Satan, which means, that name means adversary, enemy, or devil. 
And, and where did he come from? The, the Bible teaches that he was one of God's created angels and he along with a third of God's angels rebelled against God and were cast out of his presence and have been rebelling against God ever since. And we don't know how that happened. We don't know why that happened. That's one of the questions I'm gonna ask God one day. How did that happen? C.S. Lewis speculates that perhaps it was because God was gonna create us in his image that Satan became intensely jealous and rebelled against God. I don't know, maybe that's it. But we also need to know what Satan is not because a lot of us are walking around with a big misperception about Satan. See, Satan is not omnipotent. Omnipotent means all-powerful. Satan's not all-powerful. He's very powerful and he's supernatural, but Satan's power has limits. He's not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. His presence has limits. He's not omniscient. He's not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. See, the misperception we have, a lot of us have, is that Satan is somehow God's equal opposite, like yin-yang type thing, like darkness balances the light. No, 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 no. Mm -mm. Satan is not as powerful as God. Jesus identified Satan this way, John 8, 44. He said this, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies. So Satan is a murderer and a liar according to Jesus. Revelation chapter 12 calls him an accuser. He's night and day making accusations about us before God. He's accusing us before God. So picture like a, like a courtroom scenario. You're the defendant. Satan's the prosecuting attorney. God the Father's the judge. And Satan's making a really strong case about how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in that moment, we need a defense. And the only defense that's effective is one person, one name, Jesus. Jesus, who as Satan lobs those accusations, goes, yeah, but I paid for that. I took the punishment for that. I paid the price for that. Consequently, for those of us who have faith in Jesus, God the Father sees his son's righteousness on our behalf, not our sin. So this is really important to understand. Anytime, as a follower of Jesus, when you sense or feel or hear accusation identifying you by your past sin, that is never, ever, ever coming from God. That is always, always, always coming from the enemy. Satan always tries to identify us by our past sins and mistakes. With accusations like you are, notice that's identifying you, you are a liar, you're a thief, you're a junkie, you're a whore, you're a fake, you're a fraud, you're worthless, you're useless. Satan always reminds us of the things that we've done and then tries to identify us by those things. Don't you remember how you ran out on your family? coward how you cheated on your wife you adulterer remember how you treated your children you're a failure as a parent don't you remember what you said you're a liar or even maybe worse yet when satan reminds us of what was done to us you remember how you were abused raped molested abandoned you know why because you're garbage you're worthless nobody loves you nobody wants you people just want to use you those accusations always come from the enemy. None of that is ever from God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to understand how to identify those. Because Satan has some motives, and Jesus tells us about his motives in John 10.10. He says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. Those are his motives. He wants to kill you. He wants to steal from you and rob from you the abundant life that Jesus has for you. He wants to take you out. He's after total destruction. He's playing to win. He's fighting hard. And he's not a weak adversary either. 
That verse, 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, we just walked through a bunch of this in the last series. What animal are you and I most often compared to? Sheep. Let me ask you a question. What chance does a sheep stand against a lion? I just came from Africa. I'll answer the question. None. I saw a lot of sheep while I was in Africa, okay? I also got to see a lion up close, 10 yards away. My daughter took the picture. It was awesome. It was awesome. We, 40 minutes, I think, we sat there and just, just stared at him and marveled at his power from the confines of our big land cruiser. <laughs> And at one point, I don't know if it was me or my friend Michael, but one of us looked at the other and went, hey, bro, I dare you. <laughs> and the dare was to get out of the Land Cruiser and run around at one time and jump back in while he's sitting right there 10 yards away. And our, our guide was like, you may not do that. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay, okay. Well, why, why did he not want us to do that? Well, because that would not be a sober-minded thing to do. Sober-minded sober means thinking clearly and accurately about a situation, and it doesn't make any sense to play around with an apex predator. And for some of us, one of the problems is our perception of the enemy has been shaped by cartoons. And so you've got some picture in your mind of some doofus in red tights with a pitchfork, and we need to get rid of that picture, and we need to have a picture of an apex predator in our mind, and then all of a sudden you have a better idea of what you're dealing with. And some of us, we're goofing around, running around the Land Cruiser with the enemy. And one day he's going to pounce. I'll give you some examples. Men, that office flirtation is not innocent and it's not, it's not a small thing. It'll become a big thing and you'll be devoured by it one day. Ladies, that, that connection you're making with an old fling on Facebook, it's a big deal. It'll devour your family. Pornography it's devouring your brain, robbing your spirit. Those shady business deals will one day be brought to the light and it will all come crashing down and you'll be devoured and you won't be the only one. That substance that if you were really honest, you would say you are addicted to, you're a slave to, and it's taking more from you than you're getting from it right now just because you're functioning doesn't make it safe. And one day the enemy's gonna pounce. And you'll be devoured. We need to be sober-minded. We need to think clearly and be watchful. See, Jesus makes clear that Satan is powerful, which means he's not to be messed with. He's not to be trifled with. On your own, you and I are like sheep. Right? See, one day Jesus came across this man and he was possessed by, by a demon and Jesus cast that demon out by his own authority. And it says that in that moment, a lot of people marveled at Jesus. They're like, wow, look, look at this guy. But some of them, they were secretly thinking to themselves, well, I, I'm not so sure. I think this guy's evil and he's driving these evil spirits out by, by his own evil forces. He's evil, so he's able to command evil spirits. And Jesus knows their thoughts. So Jesus actually responds to him and says this, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and a, king, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will this kingdom stand? So Jesus is basically saying, hey guys, that would be a really bad strategy on Satan's behalf to work against himself. And then he goes on and goes, let me tell you what's really going on. He gives like a little parable. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his his spoil. See, what Jesus is saying here is simply this. The reason I can cast out demons is because he's stronger, 
Write this down. Jesus is stronger. There's no reason to be afraid because Jesus is stronger. In this little teaching, it's important to understand who's who. Who is the strong man in the parable? Satan. Who's the stronger man in the parable? Jesus. So yeah, Satan is strong, which means you don't play around with him, but Jesus is stronger. So then Jesus goes on and he says something really, really practical and also profound at the same time, which is basically this. It's not enough to just not be demon-possessed. Look, look at this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places. Jews believe that uh, demons hung out in deserts, so that's what waterless places is. Seeking rest and finding none, it says, you know what, I'll return to my house from which I came. Translation, the person from which I used to inhabit. And when it comes, it finds the house swept, put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there as well. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. In other words, just not being demon-possessed is not enough. Not having evil spirits in you is not enough. You need to be guarded. You need to have your house guarded by the stronger man, which means that we need to have the spirit of Jesus in us. The spirit of this good shepherd in us to protect us as his sheep. The other night, I, I woke up, I heard a door slam in the house, and I'm a really light sleeper, and I heard this door slam, got up immediately, went, left our bedroom, went out and, and saw the three-year-old Bo uh, just standing the, across the way, uh, just perfectly still. It was pretty creepy, actually. It was like children of the corn type moment. Like, <laughs> what are you, hey, Bo, what are you doing, you know? Just standing there silent, and I go over, I pick him up, and I start to walk back, walk him back to his room that he shares with his brother Silas, and, and he just tenses up in fear, like climbs up my neck and screams with this blood-curdling scream like I've never heard before, and he starts talking about how there's bees in his room, and I realize, oh, no, okay, so this isn't like a nightmare, we've experienced this before, it's more like a night terror, like where he's not fully awake, not fully asleep, and he's just convinced there's bees everywhere. And so literally for the next two to three hours, Allie and I took turns trying to comfort him and put him back to sleep and convince him there's no bees in the room and pray with him and sing to him and, and all that kind of stuff. And as we're, as we're taking shifts on that, as Allie's in there with, with Bo, I'm laying in our bed and I'm, I, I had these two verses that just kept coming back to my mind. One is John, 8, 40, or John 4, 4, which says this, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And it's important, again, to know who's who in that little verse. Who is he who's in you? The Spirit of Christ. Who is he who is in the world? Satan. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I also have this verse come to mind, Romans 16, 19. This is one of those I've just known since I was a little kid. Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And I kept saying those verses over and over and over again that night. Now, the next morning, when we got up, tired as we were, one of the first things we did was we researched night terrors, Right? And we, we realized there was a few physical things that according to the research could have, could, have, could have caused that to happen. So like one of them's a new light source in the room and one of the brothers had plugged in a new nightlight that had all these crazy laser beams coming out of it. So we ditched the nightlight. The other is when kids go, go to bed past what's their normal bedtime. He had stayed up way past his bedtime that night. Sometimes when their diet changes, he ate something that he didn't normally eat that night. And so you know what we did the next day? Ditched the light, he ate broccoli and he went to bed on time, right? Now, does that mean, though, that I think that on a week leading up to me teaching on spiritual warfare, that it's a mere coincidence that my three-year-old was up with night terrors? No, not even close. Why? Because everything is spiritual. 
Everything is spiritual. My wife will tell you that now it's been over 10 years I've been teaching around here that she's become accustomed to on weeks leading up to me teaching. It usually means it's going to be a very difficult week at our house. Opposition's going to come against us. Something's going to blow up. Something's going to go wrong. Something's going to happen with the kids. She's gotten so used to it that actually on weeks leading up to me teaching, if something hasn't gone wrong and it's like Friday, she'll start to be fearful that my sermon's not going to be very good. She'll come to me and be like, you may need to work on your sermon some more because I think, I think Satan wants you to preach that sermon because he's not even messing with us this week, this week you know? And there's, been, there's been many times that on a Saturday night when I, when I drag myself in the front door, she's looked at me and gone, now I understand why this has been such a hellish week. Good job. See, we have an adversary. Over 400 people were baptized across our campuses last week. Yeah. You know what? I would venture a guess that for most of those over 400 people, you had a really terrible week last week. I bet you almost felt like you had what? An enemy, an adversary, someone coming against you. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't. See, Satan is strong, but Jesus is stronger. So we need to be mindful. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be watchful of this powerful adversary who has malicious intent. But listen to me. Please hear this. We don't need to be afraid because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So here's our job. Here's our job. Be wise as to what is good. In other words, spend our time focusing on, dwelling on, and familiarizing ourselves with truth, goodness, and beauty. The things that God points us to as true and good and beautiful. Be innocent as to what is evil. Don't spend our time dabbling with and playing around with or involving ourselves with what God says. Man, that's evil. Because of this, and this is an interesting way of putting it, the God of peace will soon what? Crush Satan under your feet. Now that doesn't sound very peaceful. (laughs) The God of peace will soon crush Satan under whose feet? Your feet. Which means this, for those of us who have the spirit of Christ in us, one day we will stand victorious over our enemy, which is what God promised all those years ago in a garden. So Satan who appeared and deceived Adam and Eve, he appeared as a serpent and as the murderer that he is and the liar that he is, death was brought into the world and God cursed Satan way back then and said, look, you're gonna do some damage during your time, but your reign will end through my son when I crush your head which, listen to me, has happened, past tense, on the cross when Jesus went to that cross and died for our sins and rose from the grave conquering sin, Satan, and death. So the war is won and there are battles still being fought. That's where we live right now. So we don't have to be afraid because this has happened. We have guaranteed victory. Look at Colossians 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians chapter 2. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Go back to that courtroom scenario. You have this accuser, this prosecuting attorney. You have God the Father as the judge and you're the defendant. He's making a strong case. On that day where we stand before judgment, what do you want to say as your defense? Do you want to say, hey, 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 I went to church every other week. I went to church every week. I read the Bible. I did good stuff. I brought food for the Sister Carmen thing. 
help the little old ladies across the street. I, I try to be a, a good person, do, do more good things than bad things, tip the scales of justice in my favor. I, I tried to, look, I'm better than him. I'm better than her. Do you, do you want that to be your defense? Mm-mm. We only want one word to be our defense and one name to be our defense. And the Bible says there's power in the name. What's the name? What's the name? There's power in his name because there's power in what he's done for you and for me on a day in history when he hung on a cross and they buried his dead body and on the third day he rose again to life for you and for me so we don't have to be afraid. Let's stand. Father, we come before you right now and Father, we get fearful. We get afraid. We get deceived. We start to believe things that aren't true about you and consequently we start to believe things that aren't true about us. Father, we get caught up in darkness and fear and shame and regret. But Father, I pray for all of us across all of our campuses that we could be caught up in your grace and your mercy and your love and that we could receive the peace that you have brought for us by crushing Satan. We fight against an enemy who's already been defeated and we don't fight alone. You fight for us because you're a mighty warrior. You're always fighting for us. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.